Hey everybody, welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang. My guest today, Kristen Cavallo, CEO of the Martin Agency. Kristen is the first ever female CEO in the company's 56 year history. She spent over a decade at the Martin Agency in various strategy roles beginning in the late 90s, where she had a front row seat for some of the industry's most iconic campaigns for GEICO. In 2014, she moved to Mullen Lowe, where she held positions as President, Chief Growth and Strategy Officer. During her tenure, Mullen was named to the Ad Age A-List four times, as well as Creativity's Innovator of the Year and Fast Company's Most Innovative List. She returned to the Martin Agency amid turmoil in 2017, this time in the role of CEO. She quickly took key issues head on, like eliminating the wage gap, championing diversity, and carrying on the great creative legacy made famous by Martin through the decades all while producing double-digit growth with new clients like Buffalo Wild Wings, Sling TV, UPS, and Kohl's. In 2019, AdAge named her Executive of the Year. She is a proud mother of two. She has been to all seven continents, including Antarctica. She has summited Mount Kilimanjaro. Her leadership from the heart is lauded by those who've worked with her over the years. This is the boss lady, Kristen Cavallo and I, talking to ourselves. Well, Kristen, I start this conversation in a state of shame because I just realized it took me it took me over 40 episodes to have a true current leader of the Martin Agency. Uh, you know, you're a current leader, you're a historian of the Martin Agency. I've had creative directors who've done stints at the Martin Agency, Keith Cartwright and John Norman, but I've never had a, a proper current leader of the Martin Agency, which is really egregious because the Martin Agency has had a huge impact on me and everybody who is a geek of advertising and loves working in this business. Thank you. But I think you've just hit kind of a, uh, I think that is, an, a, that is a common thing about Martin. Um, we are consistently um, there and present, um, but not always the first agency that people think about. So uh, we're used to pushing that rock uphill. That's all right. I do think, yeah, Martin is known for this sort of um, contradiction of, hey, just keep your head down and quietly do very famous work. Yeah. You yeah. Know, usually agencies that do very famous work are also very bullish on PRing themselves and garnering that same fame. And I think there's a certain dignity to doing it for your clients without doing it for yourself. Yeah. We're getting better about our PR, but I would agree. I think we have been, um, we are a consistent force. Uh, in the in the industry and and um, one that um, I think a lot of people are very proud and we and a lot of really good people have worked here like you said Keith and and John and Jelly Helm and um, just a ton of really um, really great creative uh, humans now Karen Costello um, there are a lot of really good people that have that have graced the hallways so we're pretty we're we're happy. I think what's deal. true of Richmond. I think what's true of Richmond was true of of Boulder when I was at CPB in Boulder, which is there's something powerful about being this sort of off the advertising map destination that requires people who come to work for you to do it with a real sense of intention about exactly what they want to get out of it and how they want to sort of calibrate and focus their careers. Have you ever found that some people come and they love the work, but Maybe they, they're just, they're big city people and they kind of can't adjust to the lifestyle of Richmond. Yes, but we've had more people that have come thinking Richmond's the barrier, not Martin, and then have grown to love Richmond and never want to leave. 
it's one of the things that's contributed to us having such a deep bench is I think people come often for Martin and fall in love with Richmond. Well, Kristen, we start every interview in, in the same place, uh, which is where are you from and what did your parents do? <laughs> uh, I am an army brat. I've moved um, 23 times in my life. Um, so um, where am I from? I, I don't really don't even know how to answer that. I will tell you, I've probably spent the majority of my life in and out of Virginia at various times, whether my dad was here for the Pentagon or uh, in Charlottesville, at the Foreign Science and Technology Center. I went to college in Virginia, and then I've worked at Martin, then went to Boston, then came back to Martin, then went to Boston. And so I've, um, Virginia's probably at home, um, definitely home. Uh, my parents, my dad was career military, um, and my mom was in predominantly education, but sometimes in um, higher ed, like in an admin for higher ed, but always associated with education. So pitching has always been natural for you as an adult because you were spending your entire childhood pitching for friends. <laughs> you probably had that pitch down pat yeah. after 23 moves. Yeah, luckily I have two brothers. One's only a year apart in, in age, the other's six years older. So, but the year the year younger, we kind of, at least every time we moved, we were each other's first friend. And then we right. would each make friends and so we could double the number of friends pretty quickly. We shared a lot. We shared a room till like, I don't know, middle school. So um, we, uh, we, 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 you know, I, I was always a little lucky that I had someone on day one. Yeah. And what did, uh, what did 12 year old Kristen want to be when she grew up? An astronaut. Um, uh, in fact, I held on to that dream, uh, for a ridiculously long time, <laughs> like, uh, beyond when I thought you don't have 2020 vision and you should drop out or you, you're going to be forced to drop out. I wrote all my papers in high school on it. I wrote my college essays on it. Um, I just always thought there would be a day when I could go and maybe there will be not, yeah. um, you're still holding out. I am. Oh, I'm totally holding out. Uh, I, my favorite movies are always still things like 2012 or, or uh, Apollo 13 or anything that just kind of still has that sense of, um, I love, I love sci-fi in general, but I think um, it was created by people like, um, as I got a little older, Sally Ride, Mae Jemison. Um, I went to hear May speak. I actually went to a Star Trek conference, little known secret. Um, and May was talking about what created, she was the first black woman to go to space. And she said she was influenced by Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek because she saw a black woman on the bridge in a technical role and thought I could do that. It didn't really bother her or make her pause that that was not a real role, that she was playing a role on TV. There was a sense of, I could do that. And I think that I've always grown up, you know, Battlestar Galactica, uh, all those kind of shows making me feel like I could be something, I could be part of something bigger. You are the target audience for the first commercial space flights. Yes, I'm doing it. I just have to, yeah. you know, find like 20 million bucks to <laughs> buy a seat from Elon Musk. But other than that, I'm this close. <laughs> so we'll fast forward a little bit here. You know, it's, it's fascinating that you had this, you know, uh, dozen plus years at Martin um, before returning. And so you are in sort of a unique position to talk about 
this kind of, you know, this transformation and this legacy of the company over the past 20 years. Maybe we just start with, can you paint a little bit of a picture of what the Martin agency looked like and felt like when you showed up in the late nineties? Um, um, I have to think back. I was a new mom. So I, I was, um, my son at the time was maybe 18 months old. Um, so I do frame a lot of it. It was a really nice place to work. It was a nice place. It was the most balanced place I had found. Um, I felt supported. Even back in 1998, I worked from home on Fridays. Uh, being a being a mom, they were flexible in that in that respect. <clears throat> I remember one time I got. Um, it was a really. It was a very impactful gesture on the part of my boss, Earl Cox. I was a single parent, and. Um, and one year, my bonus was that the agency opened a 529 plan for my son. And I had to oh. agree to stay for the five years, but they would put the money in. I didn't realize at the time it was in lieu of any other bonus. <laughs> Probably wasn't a good deal. But emotionally, it took a huge weight off my shoulders because I came home and I called my dad and I said, I'm going to be able to send my son to college. And I know that now at age when he's two. And um, I really thought it reflected a leadership that listened and um, and went deeper than just um, you know your traditional career path. Um, over time, I found that being in an agency town that didn't have a lot of, of options, we have more now, but at the time we didn't have as many. Um, kind of forced a lot of us who were ambitious to tread water for long periods of time because there just weren't a lot of open roles. Um, I think the same thing happens at Wyden. I look at people, you know, who are in Portland who've spent 20 years, 15 years as a creative director because you kind of, you kind of make a deal in your head that you want to be at that agency in that place. You want to raise your kids. And so in that whole mix of conflicting priorities, sometimes your career path, um, you just, you, you decide to, to tread water. Um, I was fortunate that I was able to make some lateral moves. So I moved out of strategy and into new business and ran new business. And that kind of helped the army brat in me feel like it was a looking at the world from another new perspective. I tend to every three to five years want to do something new. So I had gone into Mike Hughes's office, who was the chief creative officer at the time and said, here's my dilemma. I like Martin and I like Richmond but I have to find my next career in this building because I'm ready to do something other than what I'm doing. So, um, and they were flexible about that. But I think that um, I, I felt like I spent a, a large period of time um, where I questioned whether I could sometimes be doing more. Right. And if we're being honest, these agencies that aren't located in these big revolving door marketing cities, you know, they're aware they're aware of who has planted their roots and has started a family and based on lifestyle really doesn't want to leave. And sometimes that can work uh, adversely against you as you're, you know, trying to negotiate your upward mobility. So, Absolutely. I mean, what you just described, I think is, is if you're going to be in one of those cities and you're going to, and you're an ambitious person, you sort of have to invent the role um, or you have to push the issue a little bit more than maybe if you're in New York and just say, you know, if I don't get this role, I'm going to cross the street and, and yeah. take that job from our you competitor. Have, yeah. You have to um, focus on your skills and not the job title. That's one thing that I've, I've really realized is that um, 
my skills were transferable. I could take a lot of the things that that maybe made me excel in strategy or that I found joy in strategically and apply them to new business if I thought of the agency as a brand and not a business. Um, right. and, and so that was, that was how I took that over. I took that perspective um, and thought, so when I moved over to new business, I thought to myself, who's my target audience? I wrote a positioning statement for the agency. I figured out the exact kind of clients I would want to go after the same way I would have on a brand figuring out who's my target audience. I figured out who my true competitive set was, my aspirational competitive set. Um, and when we did that, we actually reduced the number of pitches we were in because we said no a lot more often, which is a really scary thing to do for any agency because you're always so motivated by the phone ringing. Um, but also because we were an agency to your earlier point, kind of like we were like an Ikea, like you, you know, you want to go to Ikea when you go to Ikea, it's usually 45 minutes away. You make a day trip out of it. You got to bring a bigger right. car. Like it's not the kind of thing that you just add on to your trip where I think a lot of times if you're a New York agency or a big city agency. If the clients are already coming and talking to two or three other agencies in the city, they might be willing to tack you on. Martin was always a conscious choice. Um, somebody had a client had to choose to come visit and therefore they had to choose and we had to be, we couldn't tie and win we had to win to win. And, um, and I've always loved that challenge. That was the same at Mullen when I went to Mullen. I've, I've, yeah. I've always really uh, liked the harder path of that, I think. Before I speak to Kristen, the CEO, may I speak to Kristen, the strategist for yeah, a few yeah. minutes? Okay. So you get to Martin. First of all, does the Geico Gecko exist? Do the Geico cavemen exist when you arrive? The cavemen did not exist. Um, the gecko, I think, did at that point. Um, but the, the cavemen did not. Yeah. From a strategic standpoint, can you just talk a little bit since you were there in those early days of forming Geico, which ended up really informing an entire sort of cottage industry of comedic insurance marketing? Yeah. How, how, outla how outlandish it was at the time to market an insurance company using humor. Oh, it was um, very, and it required a lot of, um, I think, really good salesmanship on the part of a lot of people at Martin. Um, but I will say to this, so a lot of things, a lot of variables all came together in that moment to have that happen. One of them was that we already had a 10-year relationship with Geico where we were basically running it as a direct marketing, performance marketing piece of business. So what you had at that point was a great relationship, a solid relationship and, and um, trust that was inherent. So it wasn't, we didn't pitch multiple storylines, right? Um, multiple storylines came out of, uh, a lot of it was Mike Hughes. He was a, a big, um, he loved television, loved movies, loved storytelling. And so, it started with, we just went in and layered on more, more campaigns. And because they were um, a, a real-time marketer, we don't test the work with Geico, never have. Um, every, every campaign just had a different phone number. And so we knew which campaigns were driving calls and which ones were driving into the call center. And what we found was the more campaigns we layered, the more interest we got. So they didn't, um, they didn't, take over from each other, they were cumulative. 
And then Warren Buffett owns the company. So then he came in and said, well, until you hit the point of diminishing returns, I'll just keep adding media budget until you've hit that point. And we hit a point, I think, at six. But it wasn't actually a point where consumers weren't calling. It was that we couldn't handle the volume, which is then we developed the cavemen because then we were trying to get people to get off the phone and go online. So it was so easy a caveman could do it because then we knew we could handle the volume. So it was right. everything we've done has been quite pragmatic. Um, but it, uh, but it is a great case study, but mostly I think it's a great case study of an agency client relationship more than, I mean, creative is the, is the result of the trust. Just as a quick aside, do you have, whether for personal reasons or your, your personal attachment to it, do you have an all-time favorite Geico commercial? Oh, I have so many. I mean, recently, I love the ants. Um, I just, it just feels like every one of those women have been in my life. Um, but uh, I love the raccoons. I think they're yeah. kind of funny and snarky in the same way that I loved the cavemen. I've always liked yeah. the ones with a little bit more edge to them. A little bit, um, I don't want to say snarkier, but... I don't love, I don't as much love the ones that are, um, that are hams where it's just a, it's just a parody. Those aren't as funny to me as the ones that are more comedically dark. For me, it's the, it's the caveman at the airport on the people mover yeah. dressed like Bjorn Borg, <laughs> seeing the sign and walking Not backwards. A to me, single just- word. That's just the great, the, one of the great examples of, we think that to reach broad audiences, you have to create broad films. And that's so specific. And there's a lot of inside humor in it. And it's so subtle. And you realize like personal is broad. Broad isn't broad. It's sort of the, the irony yeah, of it. Yeah, the one and two where they said, I'll have the duck with the mango salsa. And then <laughs> yeah. mango salsa is also turned up with the raccoon. So there are some common themes. Did you have a first big claim to fame in terms of developing a strategy that led to work that you felt you really connected to that really sort of popped in, in popular culture? Volkswagen drivers wanted. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, that was one of my, and still to this day remains one of my all time favorite campaigns. Um, I think from a planning standpoint, it was very different car advertising. It had a, the consumer had as big a role as the car. In fact, we had this point of view in when we were making the ads that the ads would be half about driving and half about life. And normally cars, car advertising was 90% about sheet metal and then maybe 10% of humanity or a well-crafted line. Now it feels like it's 90% manifestos. Um, but, uh, which is one of the reasons I love our CarMax ads, because I think that they're very much, again, about a balance between sheet metal and life and humans. There's a humanity um, where it, they both, to me, feel like the humans are as important as the product you sell and that the relationship between them matters. And so um, it was a real moment where I felt like uh, I had broken into a different, a different group when it came to credibility, I guess. Well, I could do it. I knew in my heart I could do it. I cut my teeth working on Volkswagen and it's a, it's a proud fraternity. If any advertiser gets to work on Volkswagen, it's sort of, you're a steward of one of the great marketing legends, uh, legacies. It still, it it came up when we worked on it at CPB. That line also comes up. I feel like pretty semi-frequently throughout my career at different agencies and in different briefings, the use of the example, Hey, it's like, you know, it doesn't have to be the same collection of words. It can be longer. You know, it's like um, on the road of life, there are passengers and there are drivers, drivers wanted. It's, 
that really broke a formula and there's a length to it that sort of, you know, defied convention. You were really making, you know, you'd made a life for yourself in Richmond, as you stated, um, you were valued enough that they were allowing you to, you know, enjoy some frequent um, transformation and figure out new roles to keep yourself fulfilled and stimulated. What was the motivation after 13 years at Martin to try something new at Mullen? I felt I was ready for something new. And, um, and my options at that point at Martin were limited. Um, I, I had spent about seven years in strategy, six years in new business. We'd had a really good new business run, you know, doubled the size of the agency, um, had just that year been Adweek's agency of the year, um, had won Walmart, which was a pitch that no one thought we could win just because of its size and magnitude. Um, and Joe Grimaldi called, he was the CEO of Mullen at the time, and he had been the president of Mullen when I was there in 94. I started my career at Mullen as an intern. And we would periodically run into each other at different events, both being IPG, but I didn't have a regular cadence or relationship with them. But um, I picked up the phone and, and he, and it, actually I should say this, when I left Mullen for Arnold, I went in and I was, um, I really wanted Mullen to counter but I wanted to make more money. I was making like $18,000 a year. And so I went in and I thought I'm armed with a competitive offer and I'm going to put it out there and they're going to say, Oh no, you're so valuable. You must stay. And Joe looked at me and he said, I think you should go. And I was like, yeah, all the best. <laughs> and it, was, <laughs> it was this really just kind of humbling moment where I was like, Oh snap. Um, but he was like, listen, you're young. You should go work in the city. We were in North, the North Shore at that time. And, and he was like, ah, just go have fun. Volkswagen's a great account. Um, and, and, and he actually taught me the value of letting people go, which is something that, uh, that I think we don't use enough of. We always, you know, when somebody quits, your immediate thought is you have to counter. And I don't believe in countering. 99% of the time, I believe we're all replaceable. And, um, and if somebody really wants to go, rarely does a little additional money stay, really change things for the long term. It might keep them for a year, but it's rarely changed the overall outcome. And so Joe just took a very, it's a long, it's a long industry, it's a long day, we'll meet again. And so 16 years later, he called me and he said, I've been waiting 16 years to call you and ask ah. you to come back. And um, and they were so amazing. Um, I still lived in Richmond the whole eight years I worked at Mullen. And I told them I did not want to be away from family more than two nights a week, um, that I actually really liked my kids and, you know, wasn't trying to get away from them. And, um, and so they said, okay, deal. So I flew up on Tuesday and I flew home on Thursday and I was home five nights a week. And we did it for eight years and um, really transformed that whole company during, it was one of the most liberating times in my entire career was that whole experience. And I learned that you could rewrite the rules that you could, that, that people could work remotely, um, but still be engaged that, that we could question assumptions um, and that we could do really amazing big things. I mean, when I went to Mullen, we had three offices and kind of just really random places, Winston-Salem, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Boston. And when I left, we had um, merged with Lowe. We had, you know, 90 offices in 60 countries. In the U.S., we were in L.A. and New York and Boston. 
Um, and so it was really just a transformative experience for me. I've really enjoyed my time with uh, Kristen, the strategist. Now I'm going to invite Kristen, the CEO, into the room. Okay. okay. So you're the first female CEO of the Martin Agency since its founding in 1964. And you enter Martin in 2017 at a time of crisis, following the removals and resignations of some very high profile figures. I understand you can't get into specifics, but if you could just give me a sense of just based on the circumstances, how you weighed the decision, whether the job was right for you and whether it was a challenge that you wanted to take on. Hmm. It absolutely was a challenge because I felt um, Mullen for me was the first time in my career where it felt like a true meritocracy. I was, uh, I wasn't in a room because I was a woman and I wasn't not in a room because I was a woman. I was in a room because of the value of my brain and my thinking. And, um, you were as good as your last good idea. So there was pressure, there was, um, hunger, there was, uh, I wasn't held back or feared because I had ambition, um, you know, I think ambition is one of these really weird words because women for most of their lives are described as nurturing, whether in our personal lives or even in our professional lives. She's a great nurturer. She's a great team builder, whatever. And then the minute you get to a certain level um, and someone says you're ambitious, all of a sudden overnight, people decide that you are ambitious only for yourself. It's like they forgot the preceding 20 years of nurturing that they give you credit for. It doesn't occur to most people that you can be ambitious for equality or ambitious for um, teamwork or ambitious for a higher purpose. It's always ambition is one of those words that's seated in negative term, you know, things around it. Self-serving. Yeah. And, um, and at Mullen, I didn't feel that way. Even though there weren't that many women at the top, I, I really truly felt like I earned my way there. And so when I got the call from IPG um, on a Monday afternoon saying, we need you to go back and be CEO of Martin, um, my first thought was fear. I'm not going to lie. Like my first thought was fear. I was like, I am happy where I am. Um, we had just decided to, to merge the low thing. I grew up in, in moving all over and including abroad. And I thought this has global opportunity for me. I can really stretch myself. Um, but I also knew in my heart that I had this irrational relationship with the Martin agency. Um, and being that I still lived here, and I had friends. I had not myself walked into Martin in the eight years that I was gone, but I certainly had a lot of friends that's, that still worked at the agency who I love and cared about. And it was a hard time. And I thought to myself, if it's not me, it's going to be somebody who doesn't know the place as well as I do. And I suspected that beneath the anger that there might be in that moment, that there was a, a level of fear um, you know, fear you could lose clients, fear you could go under, a lot of change. And Martin normally is a hallmark of stability, um, you know, in this industry. Mike and John had been here very long times. It's not an agency that ever felt um, heavy, 
heavy turnover. We, you know, if anything was the, the exact opposite. And so I thought to myself, I, um, some people might not be happy, but others would be relieved to see a familiar face um, who Mike and John had raised and taught. Um, and I'd been an IPG employee for 25, 28 years at that point between Mullen Martin, Mullen Martin. And so I honestly, actually in that moment, didn't really think of it as an option. I was scared, but I thought I needed to go. But it was really my boss at Mullen, Alex, who said, I went to his office immediately and he said, you have to do this. And I'm bitter about it, <laughs> but you have to do this. Um, because we had a really good, strong partnership. Uh, and so literally I flew home that night and I walked into Martin the next day at 11 a.m. and was announced to the staff. And I was, um, I was shaking. I was, I was. It's interesting. It's interesting to hear this from a, a, an army brat because it's, it sounds like a deployment, what you're describing. It is. And I will tell you, I do think, gosh, my dad had such a big influence on my brothers and I, um, my dad was one of these people. I told this story at his, at his funeral. It'll give you a little bit of insight in my dad. One time we went to the beach with all my cousins and we were constantly probably asking him, what time is it? What time, when are we going to do this? Constant, constant. And maybe we'd asked what time it was too many times. So he told us to go out and put a, and put sticks in the sand to mark where the shadows were. And basically we created a sundial so that we could tell our own time. It took us an hour to build the sundial, but everything about him was that he encouraged us to think for ourselves and, um, and solve problems ourselves and to run towards hard things, not away from them. Um, and not to loot, not to choose fear. Um, doesn't mean you can't be afraid but understand that you are the, when there is a problem, you are the beginning to the, of the solution to that problem. You are not controlled by that problem. And I think I just took that into this moment with me. I thought um, I could make a difference. Yeah. I mean, you had been at Mullen, you'd served as president, you had been in that sort of bread and butter chief strategy role, but also in a chief growth role. You know, my assumption is usually that you really can't be a self-actualized CEO until you've done the job, but maybe that wasn't true for you. When, yeah. when you made that transition, were there specific skills that you were conscious sort of needed the most development rapidly? Um, gosh, everything at that moment needed. I mean, I had like 15 conflicting priorities and they were all super important. Um, I am a middle child. So here's the other thing I will say that I've learned about myself. I tend to modify my leadership style based on what is needed most in the moment. So at Martin, where we have, at the time when I was here, the first 13 years, where we have a lot of very caring, other-centered other -centered people, I tended to take on the bull in the china shop mentality, the shark, because I was like, we have so many team players, I'm going to be the person who pushes. Um, and when I went to Mullen, there were so many sharks, there were so many pushers that I was, it was a joke in our executive committee that I was the only one of us who had tissues in my office and people would, I put a sofa, a couch in the office instead of a table so people could come and sit and bitch and cry. Um, so I do think I am um, a little able to morph in that moment. Um, but I have always also felt and I don't think I knew it until that moment. I've never aspired to be a CEO ever. And I think part of that 
in my head is I equated my job to a chessboard and I thought the king can only move one square in any direction, but the queen can move in any direction as many squares as she wants. And being an army brat, I've always valued freedom more than power. I've never aspired to own an agency. I've never aspired to have my name on a door, um, but I've always aspired to have flexibility and move and not feel caged or stuck. And so um, what I realized in that moment was that I, I, had, I got the job. I was, I've never interviewed for the job ever in my entire career, and now here I am. So most people, when they walk into a job because they've interviewed, have thought, what am I going to do the first 30 days, 60 days? And I, I had no ideas. And there were a lot of, as I said, very important conflicting priorities. And, um, and so honestly, I just leaned into my strengths in that moment. I thought, um, uh, I need a team. I need a team of people who, because I can't, we can't, you can't do this alone. And advertising is absolutely a team sport. It's why it always surprises me that we have so many awards to individuals um, because none of us get anything out the door by ourselves. I've never been on a shoot in my entire career. I have no idea how an ad gets made. <laughs> that should probably strike fear in the hearts of a lot of people. Um, but that doesn't mean that I can't be a part of really great award-winning, life-changing, business-changing advertising, right? I just, um, but we, you know, we celebrate a lot of weird things in this industry, I think. But Well, yeah, such a big, I mean, such a big part of the CEO job is setting that vision. And sometimes it's about introducing new language that people can rally around, new thoughts, new ideas. Um, how, especially as someone who had been there, who sort of has the historical perspective of Martin and some of that language that people had rallied around for two decades that had made the agency what it was, um, what was sort of the balancing act of introducing new ideas without trampling on some of those bedrock ideas that made Martin what it was? Yeah. Well, I will say this. I think one of the things that I've learned in that moment, um, you, your initial assumption is to come in and say they need a vision. They need something that a North star, but the, the truth was that in that moment, what they needed was availability from me. And so I didn't live 30,000 feet in the air. I went out to coffee with a ton of people. In fact, I just did this the other day. I sent out an email to the staff saying, who wants to do zoom coffees? And in 24 hours, I have 70 coffees lined up. So we're doing them in groups of 10 and we're just going to do a coffee hour and, um, and they're going to be just random and, and, and fun. But it, I feel like too often leaders live out of touch with their people. And what people need more than anything is availability, sometimes more than, than vision. That being said, the other thing I did was I just did the same thing I did the first time I was here in New Business or when I was at Mullen, which is treat the agency like a brand and not a business per se. Um, so we needed a positioning statement. We needed to know who our target audience was and we needed to remind ourselves we knew how to win. And, um, and we've been, our win rate now is north of 86%, but we're also pitching far less. I think the year I came, the agency had maybe been in like 16 pitches and now we don't do more than five, but we have a higher win rate of those five because we know exactly the kind of clients we're looking for. And so um, it's sometimes been harder during COVID to vet a client um, but too often, I think in pitches, 
clients have the disproportionate power of vetting the agency and the agencies don't get to equally vet the client. And, you know, when I look at our best work, it's never been one campaign. Um, and so I think too often pitches spend too much time emphasizing one line or one campaign and not a relationship. And so we've had to do a lot of retooling how we do new business in order to figure out how to vet a client within the structure of a new business pitch um, because consultants kind of by design are trying to level the playing field when the irony is pitches by design are trying to unlevel a playing field. So totally. it's, it's a, it's, it's a broken system, but it's the system that we have. Um, I do think so availability mattered a lot. My team mattered a lot, just not figuring out that I not feeling like I ever had to do anything by myself um, was yeah. a huge feeling of grace. Um, I gave myself the grace to not carry the burden alone. Um, and if your people, if your people needed availability, I'm guessing the same was true of Martin agency's clients. Can you share a little bit about the conversations you had with what I'm going to assume were some probably anxious clients when you first took the helm and what you felt like they needed to hear most loudly and clearly from you. Yeah, I was very specific. I mean, I went to see or talk to every one of them. I was very specific to ask. I asked every one of them for six months. So don't do anything for six months. Get to know me. Let me just calm the seas a little bit. And, um, and But I was also, there was this moment in time where I could ask everybody if they wanted something new. It was like, it was like pushing a reset button on a relationship that even the relationships like Geico that were super secure and safe. Um, I could say to them, this is a moment where we could build something different. We could do something different. What should we do together? Um, so I will tell you the two relationships, there were only two relationships that were probably really tough. The rest all loved their teams and felt like they would not abandon that they loved their agency teams. It wasn't about the leadership. Um, it was about the people that worked on their business every day, which that's such a message that I want to send anyone who works in this industry is, you know, you can be a senior planner, you can be a senior art director, and you think that you don't matter as much as the C-suite, and that's total crap. What kept the business in those moments was all those was all the relationships with the regular people that work on the brand every day, not any kind of elevated anything. We didn't lose a single client that year, right? And and um, and we had a pretty significant changeover in leadership. So if it was all at the top, um, we would have seen a lot more shift. But the two relationships that pushed me the most were Mondelez and Geico. They were the ones who said, this is a moment in time, let's use it to fuel dramatic change. Um, but do so with the comfort of knowing we're not abandoning. So um, you rarely get moments like that. A lot of times people change out of fear, fear of losing something. And to have, you know, Geico in particular, Bill, the, um, the senior leader, um, really became a mentor to me in a business mentor. Like he, he said, let's break some things and make ourselves both better because we're too dependent on television or we're too dependent on this production schedule. And, um, and we had a machine, you know, I mean, it was like, and, and we had just won the titanium lion. Like there's a lot of reason to think don't break anything. Um, and, 
and we did. And when I look at the things we did in that moment, and then I fast forward to COVID, if we had not fundamentally changed and asked ourselves some major questions about the way we produce things, and if we could produce them and make them differently, we would not be in a situation where we in COVID could produce work for 90% of our clients today. I mean, it is because two years ago, we broke the system that we were, that we, and rebuilt it in a way where every employee has a major and a minor so that um, we have fewer handoffs and we have more people that can more fluidly move things through a system. Um, you know, clients and consumers don't always think about this is my social post or this is my thing. They just feel something about our brand. But agencies were built on the backs of individual skill sets. We needed more people who could weave and fluidly flow from one thing into another, which meant we had to hire differently. We had to train differently. We had to encourage people and let them know it's okay to fail. All of those things, we built an entirely new production company called Superjoy. All of those things we did then are paying the dividends right now. Um, and I'm so grateful that he pushed us to do it. And I'm so grateful that they gave us the safety net of knowing that our relationship was not on the line. Um, Right. That's the, you know, because I think often agencies change either because a new business is the mother invention or fear of losing something is the mother invention. And it's rare when it's relationship and just a belief in each other and wanting someone else's highest possible good that is the mother of invention. Yeah, I mean, and Geico in particular, to me, it's like when you think of the five greatest client agency relationships in the history of advertising, you know, it's, totally it's Nike and Wyden and Martin and Geico. I don't and a few honestly others. know. And I say this, I, I know it's a selfish thing for me to say, but even when I was at Mullen, I don't know why Geico doesn't win more ad awards because honestly, they win a lot of, they win, they win a lot of ad awards. Let, let me tell you, I'm the 42nd person you've done this. <laughs> Touche. Touche. I mean, we're not the first Brand people think of people immediately go, oh, long relationships, Nike, right. widen. You don't, right. I mean, it will come down to Martin Geico, but the truth is we put out like 150 commercials a year. It, you know how hard it is to, to make that some people would say the last Geico commercial was their favorite and not the first. You know how long, hard it is to keep something great that long and surprising and yet feel true? Um, and be so damn productive at the same time, like it's, it's crazy hard and they make it look crazy easy. And we've had more than one client and we've had more than one creative director on that business. And you wouldn't, I mean, you might feel it, you know, caveman feels different than ants or whatever, but there's such breadth. That. The genius of it is that they all feel different and they all feel the same. Yes. And it's, you know, yeah. I know. Tell, so, so, so speaking about creative and creative leadership, just tell me a little bit about the appointment of your, your new chief creative oh, officer Danny. for those who don't know him. Danny. Yeah. Um, we should know him. He's been around uh, yeah. in the industry for, for a while. Um, he did the Oprah giveaway while at Vigilante, which was um, an agency he co-founded uh, did a lot of really wonderful work uh, for Snapple and, and Heineken um, at Martin. You know, Mike convinced him to leave his own shop, which I don't think is an easy decision for anyone to make. It required probably a lot of 
humility on, on Danny's part uh, or just desire to be part of a team. Um, and then he ran really important things at Martin. Chevy, our relationship with Chevy, he was the creative director on the Walmart pitch, which was the biggest win in our agency's history. Um, and he is more important than any of those kind of resume builders. He's, um, he has a huge heart and he's trusted and he's beloved. And that was the carryover from Karen um, that I wanted. Like Karen uh, was heavily trusted. She's probably one of the most beloved creative directors, you know, that Martin's ever had, you know, and it's hard to follow my cues because he was incredibly loved. Um, but Karen did very well. And um, I don't, even though I don't think she ever met him, she filled those shoes probably better than, than most others have. Um, and Danny, in many respects, was kind of handpicked by Mike, you know, a while ago. In fact, one of the first people Danny heard from when he got the appointment was Mike's wife, um, Jenny, saying Mike would be very proud. And one of the second people that wrote him, I think, was Jeff Goodby, was a very close friend of Mike's, saying wow. this role deserves a big heart and that's why they picked you. And I think, you know, there was this weird, I remember one time when I took over new business, um, Mike came and sat down with me and he said, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job, but I am going to tell you that if Nike or Apple ever call, we won't take their, we won't take it. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Like Nike and Apple? Those are two like the greatest brands ever. What do you mean if they call a new business? I'm going to say no. And he said, I think certain agencies have earned certain brands and Shiat earned Apple and Wyden earned Nike. And, um, and we won't do it unless Dan or Lee or, or Jeff in, in that case tells me, yes, this relationship is done and you can do it. And I thought to myself, wow, he's like a Jedi master. Like there's like this ether of kind of cool Jedi leaders that, you know, if you remember the movies, they all sat around in this kind of council and, um, and I was looking going, who's going to do that in our industry where we were all willing to break up relationships right and left. You know, everyone was quick to get in on a Nike basketball assignment or a Amex small business assignment and, and kind of, um, that he, they just, those gentlemen wanted the industry to be respected, not just their personal work to be respected. They, they laddered everything up because they wanted, you know, Advertising's downranked at the time. It used to be gun salesmen and priests in the you know <laughs> scale of trust. Um, I'm not sure if either of the, we were below them, by the way, at the time. I'm not sure how that would fare today, but we're probably still not in the top um, of most trustworthy businesses. And I think that era of CCOs wanted it to be, and I think Danny wants it to be. He will speak positively of his competitors. He will speak positively of his peers. He will do his best to raise the credibility of the industry. And that's why we chose him. It's beautiful. Well, you talked about breaking things in a good way with clients. And I think another thing that you've been um, lauded for is breaking things in terms of taking on big issues right away. Um, the wage gap, diversity, uh, maternity leave, and sort of using the moment of crisis to, to make swift change specific to diversity, you know, for, for decades, agencies have strived for about 25 to 30% people of color based on the sentence, based on the census, most have fallen short of even that relatively unambitious number. Um, the difficult thing is if you're an agency of 500 or more people, you know, 
it's like some things can be solved with creativity. Some other things can just be solved by hiring more black and brown people. But if you're a large agency, you have to hire a lot of black and brown people to even move that number from 25 to 30%. So what is, as someone who's running a, a relatively large agency, what is a reasonable expectation for what change looks like over the next one or two years? I think it's reasonable to think a lot of change can be made. Um, and I think that too often we are setting the, we're setting the bar too low. You know, when I see these commitments to say we'll have, you know, 13% by 2023 or whatever the number is, I'm thinking you could have 13% in one calendar year. Yeah. Period. The, the thing about leadership is we set the pace of change. So you can um, create roles, you can move people, um, you know, you can join roles, you can have co situations, you can uh, in, encourage people to, to, you know, I moved a, a CSO into a new business. I moved, I created a role for Danny by creating an entire position of chief client officer. Um, uh, you know, I have a, a gentleman, Matt Maddox is in the planning department. He's now the lead account person running Geico. Mike Kelly was in the planning department. He's now a creative director. We need to see that lateral movement is just as valuable as as upward mobility. And even within upward mobility, you don't just have to move up the same ladder you're on. You can, so many people in advertising are gifted at so many things. You know, this is not an industry of, you know, like cancer researchers or electrical engineers where you might go really deep um, technologically on one thing. Some of the best creative directors are excellent strategists, and some of the best strategists are really great creative directors, and um, some of the best writers are planners, and some of the you know best account people. And, and I think we need to create a place where we can have more misfits. And if you do that, then you see opportunity everywhere. The other thing is, I think often we all sit on panels, but we don't really listen. Um, I was on a panel two years ago where somebody said something and it was like one of those moments where you, it makes you rethink a lot of things. So we knew equality and diversity mattered um, to both Karen and I, we knew we wanted to make measurable, statistically significant leaps. And um, we were super fortunate because one of the benefits of coming at a time of crisis is that your staff is demanding change. And it is rare because most of the time people don't demand change in any area of their life. We, we hold to um, the familiar and we are resistant towards change. And one of the benefits, and that's actually what Mondelez said to me, they quoted that, um, you know, the quote about never waste a good crisis. They were like, when you have a staff that's demanding change, you need to run with it and, and change a whole bunch of other things at the same time. But I was sitting on this panel and somebody said, um, if you have four people interviewing for a job and three people are the same and one is different, normally you would look at that as a statistician and say each person has a 25% chance of getting the job. But if these three people are the same and this one's different, this person has a 0% chance of getting the job. Unless if these three are like, if these three are, let's say white men, and this is a, an African-American or a woman, this person actually has a 0% chance of getting the job. However, if these three are women or these three are African-American and this is a white male, he has a 33% chance of getting the job. And that's the, that's the definition of unconscious bias is that it, it, it throws 
the normal statistics out of whack because it's a bias. But I don't believe there's malicious intent going on with the majority of people in the industry. I do believe a lot of it is unconscious. But I said, so what do you do if you really want to change the numbers? And they said, you have to, I'm going to do the whole (laughs) Star Trek. You have to have 50% or two thirds of your candidacy pool has to be diverse or your numbers won't change. Why came home with that? Again, as a mathematician, I was like, all right, well, then I just called my head of talent and culture and I said, 50% of our talent pools have to be diverse candidates by gender or by race, or we're not going to see the metrics move. And so we just decided that's all it took, right? right? And then we had measurable, statistically significant change within a year. And within two years, we had a lot of change. And now we're going on our, we're coming to the close of our third year. And, um, and our, our company is fundamentally different. And it's why we won pitches like DoorDash. They picked us because of our diversity. So for an agency that forever was seen as white and male and traditional, um, we are anything but that now. And if we can change, because no one ever thinks of us as cutting edge, um, although they will now think of us as progressive. Um, but if we can do it, anyone can do it. What, what I think the, the thing that's stopping us is that our ambitions aren't big enough. I was shocked recently. I was looking at Agency Spy and maybe 10 people that had just recently been hired were profiled and eight out of the 10 were white in the middle of, of Black Lives Matter. And we're all transparently sharing our numbers and signing pledges. And eight out of the 10 people were white. They were also male. But I kind of feel like the women's era, the women's movement has kind of been, you can only have apparently one movement at a time. (laughs) So we can't, God forbid, do both. But um, I was shocked that we were so, as an industry, blatant, blatantly paradoxical. I don't want to say hypocritical because that assumes um, a level of malicious intent that I really don't know that I have found to be there. But I do believe we are too comfortable living in paradox or 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 just where our actions don't line up and we can't be, we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard and that's the role of leadership. One of the things I've always admired most about strategists from mid-level strategists to chief strategy officers is their role in the room with a CMO in a client pitch or in a client meeting. is sort of the toughest role because you're the opener, you know, and the room can be a little tense and it's sort of like that opening act at a comedy club. Um, Now that you're CEO, how different has your, responsibility to that room shifted. And I asked this to, to um, Rob Schwartz, uh, chief, chief creative officer and turned CEO at Shiat. I said like, you know, Dave Grohl sometimes still gets behind the drums. Um, you know, do you ever feel compelled to do the strategy part, even though you're the CEO or is it important that you, that you leave that space for others? I'm rarely in the room. And it's yeah. so painful, not because I don't trust people, because I do. Um, I just miss it. I mean, if anything, sometimes having this job is just validated that I, why I didn't want it. <laughs> I don't say that to be, uh, you know, ungrateful, but um, the, my favorite role was either being GPD, head of new business or being president, where you had enough seniority to be heard but you were still seeing all the work. Like I saw the ant spot for Geico on air. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't see it beforehand. Like um, I see a lot of our work 
on air, unless it's necessarily a client. We have this thing where we're a partners reps. There are certain brands that fall in my um, purview as, as leaders. We, um, we make sure that we're all close to certain brands. Um, and I see that work, but I don't see all the work of the agency. And we would put out, we make a lot of work. Uh, we have a lot of very large clients and then also a lot of just very ambitious clients that produce a lot of stuff. And, um, and I see it as a consumer would, and I miss it. I mean, so I, I love being a new business because it's where I get to think about business problems other than my own. I, my job right now is part plumber um, and part firefighter. I'm normally called into something when there's an issue of fire or when I have to unclog a system. And, um, and it, it's, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's hard. It's hard. Not because the problems are insurmountable, but because God, I just miss solving business problems. I miss, because I'm a fangirl of advertising. I miss that moment when you sit in a meeting and you hear a great idea and you're like, Oh my God, like that's awesome. I miss that. It, just, it starts bouncing off yes. the walls and everyone's, yeah. It's so contagious. And then you yeah. carry it into the next meeting and you feel like we can, fuck it, we can solve anything. Um, yeah. I miss that feeling when you're just blown away. When you're blown away because you knew the brief, but then all of a sudden the, the creative comes back and you're like, I never saw that coming. Like I never, I never saw that. I, that was never on my radar screen. Like, holy shit. That's awesome. <laughs> Before we go into the before we go into the final three questions, let me ask you one more specific to you. You are a intrepid global traveler. Oh, you okay. love to travel with your kids. You've been to all seven continents. So it's a two part question. The first is, how does this um, this spirit of exploration maybe seep into your management style? And the question I really want to know is, you've summited Mount Kilimanjaro as part of your travels. Would you describe it as the difficulty of that feat as overrated, underrated? Or properly rated? <laughs> uh, I don't know how people rank the feet. I can tell you compared to my, what I had felt going into it. Um, I, summit day was very hard. The, the six days preceding summit day were not that d difficult. Um, but summit day was way harder than what I thought. The preceding six days, I was walking around saying to my son, we should totally climb Mount Everest. Like, we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Keep in mind, like, on Kilimanjaro, you have no clampons on your shoes. You're, like, you have no, you know, carabiners. Like, you're really not perilous on the side of anything that you could slip off of. And at summit day, you are. But the preceding six days, you're not. But we were so invincible in that moment. We were like, oh, we're totally doing base camp next year. Like, oh, yeah, we're on it. Uh, after the summit day, I, it was more like childbirth where you're like, ah, you know, I would, I, next time I'm going to take the altitude medicine, but it didn't deter me from doing it. Um, I feel so bad researching you because I have three young kids and I, I hot breath just putting them in the car and taking them up the street <laughs> and you've taken your children to Antarctica. Yeah. So that like, was one of the best get, ones. That was one yeah. of the, it would, that one, there's nothing else like it in the world because there's no ambient light. There are no indigenous people. So when it gets dark at night, it is truly dark. Like the are my daughter's right there. She's like, the penguins are adorable. Like we sat, she sat in the snow and penguins had no fear and just walked up to her. Um, 
like, wow. you know, a foot away. I have photos. It's, it's just the most incredible different place there, but it's also incredibly cold, um, which is why there are no indigenous people <laughs> living there. Um, but it was also just incredible. Do you just live on, do you just live on Mondelez branded energy bars? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I do anyway. I live on processed food. I'm, I am literally like, I have like the shelf life of a pop tart. Like I swear I'm going to live till I'm like 150 years old because I'm like hermetically sealed from the inside out. I don't cook, you know, there are a lot of, you know, one of the upsides of being uh, growing up as a army brat is I am an adventurous traveler. I always underestimate the difficulty. Like this summer we rented an RV and drove across country having never done that. And I thought, of course we can do this. Other people do this all the time. Um, it was not always easy. Uh, <laughs> but I also have no problem asking for help. So there were many a campground or a truck stop that we would ask for help and people are very willing to help. And we felt an enormous sense of um, pride and just joy that we did it. Like when we came home again, it's like that very same feeling like Kilimanjaro, like you felt like we can do anything. Um, all right. So hold on. The other question was what? Well, you sort of answered it through that, which is just sort of, does that, that's that spirit of exploration oh. sort of find its way into your management style, but I am a, you've sort I of try, answered that. I variety. try stuff all the time. I'm not yeah. a, um, I don't think about things for long periods of time. I just, I do more than I, uh, I, I have good fast gut instincts, but um, I'm always willing to try things. But I will say one area where it's definitely seeped in. And I think I was having this conversation yesterday with um, Chris Mumford, our president, I think a lot of management gets into their role and then they want to keep their job as long as possible because there's nowhere to go, right? You love the industry, you know, whatever. And so everyone below them isn't always encouraged to step up. You say you want them to step up, but you really don't want them to step too far because you're trying to hold your job. And so leadership I think sometimes consciously or unconsciously holds too much decision-making power and doesn't push it down. My job is to become irrelevant. And I view, I really do that because I cannot move on if they have, if their faith is too placed in me to solve everything um, or if they lack the faith in each other. And so as much as I hate not being in the room, my job is to not be in the room. And my job is to constantly, and so I tell them from the moment I got here, I tell, I'm telling them I'm leaving. I always say, like, my daughter graduates high school in two years and I'm out. Like, I'm single. I like being single, so that's not, not an advertisement for anything. But I, 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 I want to be nomadic. I've lived in Richmond a long time, and I am ready to just go do a whole bunch of other things. And, um, and I've already got notebooks filled with all the things I'm going to do. And so I need them to do the job or I can't leave. So I made it selfish, but, um, but the truth is the more they trust in me and the less they trust in each other, the, the less successful this company will be in the long haul. They need, I am, it is a disservice to the company if I stay too long. Wow, what a fascinating outlook. Um, listen, we end with the same three questions. So let's get right into it and I'll let okay. you go here. You've been very generous with your time. The first is, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? Vendor. <laughs> That's a new one. I don't. That's um, it just it just is. Um, 
it speaks volumes, doesn't it? Uh, I mean, I don't know. How it's so belittling. It's so belittling. Yeah, it's so belittling. That's a great way of saying it. It it frames the ambition. It frames your relationship. It frames the way they think that creativity can't solve business problems, because if they truly thought it would, they would describe it as a partner. And so it um, it is just a it's a toxic word to me. Yeah. Question number two, what is the most crazy or mortifying response you've ever received in a client meeting? Well, I posted about this recently. So if you're on my LinkedIn, you probably saw it. Um, in two pitches we've had this summer, um, both times we got to the finals and the clients <clears throat> all turned off their cameras. And so we presented to gray boxes or just to each other. And um, it said volumes to me that we didn't want to work with them, you know? Um, weird, weird. It's just also, it's just rude. Um, you know, if my kids draw me a picture, even if it's not incredible drawing, you guys are great. Um, you want to, you want to look back at them with joy, right? They need to see that from you. And, um, and it's just, uh, so dissatisfying and, um, and, so uh, we've won five other brands this summer and all of them are based on relationships. We didn't pitch for any of them. And those have been great joy, you know, and, but I love pitching in general. I just think, yeah, bad habits maybe during COVID. I don't know, but it's just, it made me feel like a vendor. It made me feel like um, we didn't matter. Yeah. In fact, if this is how you're going to do it, why don't we just record this and you guys can just watch it on your own time if there's no interaction. Well, that's great. That's the first, um, that's the first answer to that question that's specific to the COVID era. That's a good one. Um, and the final question is called the one that got away. Um, I asked this to Suzanne Powers, who's the head of strategy at McCann. It's, it works better for CCOs than strategists, but throughout your career, you've been incredibly connected to the work that you've helped create. So this question is, what was that one idea you helped come up with you know, through the great bedrock of strategy that never sold, but it'll just live in your heart for forever. Um, it was for a pitch. Gosh, there have actually been so many, right? I mean, there are those ideas that, that actually sold, but just didn't come to life as well as you thought. Right. Um, so I have two and you can edit and pick whichever one you want. So, um, the pitch was for Honda. We did not win. Um, but we had this, it was to, it was a spot to launch the minivan Honda Odyssey. And we did a video where we took, um, Osimo, their, the Honda robot and, um, that, you know, famous Honda robot. And, uh, he was always just alone in the factory at night and didn't have any friends. And so they, de we developed Asama, which is the female robot. And then we cut to them sitting outside, staring at the stars, walking through the factory. And then there's a pregnancy test and then she's got a belly. And then one night they're walking through the factory and they see the, the Odyssey minivan and they realize that's the car for them because they have this growing family. Um, and the whole line was about engineering dreams. And it was so well done and so moving and so just 100% Honda, um, but yet, so it, it talked about technology, but in a really human feeling way. And, um, and I thought it would win us the business, but it didn't. Um, but I watched the video again last night, uh, 
again. Um, we also had a- You are a fangirl. You're just watching old, you're, you're watching old pitch I know, videos. I it's so evening. sad. <laughs> I couldn't watch any politics though. So it's like, <laughs> I can't I'm do with it. You. Um, the other one, it was funny. We did it for um, an anti-smoking campaign and we developed this icon with the guys who did South Park and the icon was um, Siggy and he was a little cigarette uh, animated cigarette, but the strategy was super smart. And it was all about, um, that, that cigarette smoking cigarettes are actually a giant nag in your life. And at the beginning, they're kind of fun to hang out with, but after a while, it's like, you have to sit in the rain with them. You have to spend your hard earned money on them. They wake you up in the middle of the night and they become like the worst version of your mother ever. Like this is constant pervasive nag. And we wrote this song about put your butt in my mouth. And the whole video was very South Park and very kind of borderline crass, but it had the most infectious beat. And I still think it would have done volumes. In the end, they didn't buy it because they were worried that an animated commercial would actually encourage youth smoking. but I did an animated campaign with Truth. They they do they do animation. I agree. People don't always tell you the real reason. I, I love that idea. I that know. deserves to live today. It was it was super funny, and I also still have that one. Maybe one day. The best ideas well, never really always go away, do they? They don't. They don't. You end up watching them instead of the Republican convention. <laughs> um, <laughs> Kristen, I really enjoyed uh, connecting with you today. Thanks. I appreciate your time and, and I congratulate you on all your success. And, um, and I think we all look forward to watching you write the, the next great chapter of the Martin Agency with your incredible team in Richmond. Thank so thanks so much. so much. I'm glad we made your list. Yeah. <laughs> all right, bye-bye. Okay, thank you so much to the great Kristen Cavallo. Thank you as always to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. And as always, if you are enjoying the pod, finding it, nourishing to your brain or your soul, please subscribe, rate, review, share it with a colleague or friend. Until we talk again, peace.